I'm Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and I'm covering the inside conversation about money and power in Hollywood. With my new show, The Town, I'm going to take you inside Hollywood with exclusive insight on what people in show business are actually talking about. Multiple times a week, I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know, journalists, insiders, all of whom can break down the hottest topics in entertainment to tell you what's really going on. Listen now. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Today's episode is about our inner monologue. If I asked you, who's the person that you talk to most in the world? You might say your best friend, your spouse, parent, sister, colleague. But for most of us, the answer is us. We are the person we talk to most. And that's because most people are blessed and cursed with the ability to think in words. We replay past conversations. We imagine future dialogues. We pump ourselves up. We repeat shopping lists to commit them to memory on our way to CVS. Uh, shampoo, conditioner, soap, toothbrush. Shampoo, conditioner, soap, toothbrush. But that voice in our head isn't always very nice to us. It isn't always very useful. Sometimes it's just a jerk. Sometimes when we wake up in the morning, the silent monologue inside our heads is a little bit like the title character in the Netflix comedy, BoJack Horseman. Breakfast. Oh, I don't deserve breakfast. Shut up. Don't feel sorry for yourself. What does that do? Get breakfast, you stupid fat ass. <sighs> These are cookies. This is not breakfast. You are eating cookies. Stop it. There is a word for this sort of looping self-talk where you can't get the anxious thought out of your head and it just burrows in there like an earworm of negativity playing on repeat. The psychologist Ethan Cross calls this chatter. Today's guest is Ethan Cross. In today's episode, we talk about his book, Chatter, The Science of Our Inner Monologue, why so many people suffer from negative looping self-talk, and how to make friends 
with the voice inside your head. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Ethan Cross, welcome to the podcast. Derek Thompson, so great to see you. Thanks for having me on. So to start, why don't you say a bit about what it is that you study at the University of Michigan? So in a nutshell, I study the nuts and bolts that explain how people can manage their emotions when they want to manage their emotions. And what I mean by nuts and bolts is I try to understand the mechanics that underlie our ability or in many cases inability to manage our emotional lives. And so sometimes it takes us to studying the brain. We focus on people's behavior a lot. And we also do big intervention studies to see whether the the insights we glean from the science that we do can actually be translated to help people manage their emotions effectively in their daily lives. So one part of my daily life that is a... Uh sometimes annoyance uh, and sometimes extraordinary help is the fact that I talk to myself constantly. I have a very loud inner monologue. My sub-vocal self-talk sometimes sounds very, very vocal. Um, I had never read about this concept, though, in any formality. And so it was so awesome to get your book, Chatter, to help break it down. Um, let's start with a definition. What is self-talk? What is chatter? Well, for, before I give you the definition, I just want to normalize your experience for you and to let you know that if you have a very active inner voice, uh, you know, you're not alone. Many people do. So let's start with this concept of the inner voice, which is where I like to start things. So when scientists use the term inner voice, what we're talking about is our ability to silently use words to reflect on different features of our daily experience. Um, if I were to present you with a number, like a phone number, and I'd ask you, hey, just repeat this in your head. Say so 209-0501. You do that silently. That's you using your inner voice. If you go to the grocery store, you walk down the aisle and you think to yourself, hey, what am I supposed to buy? And you go down the list. Eggs, cheese, milk. That's your inner voice. Your inner voice is part of what we call our verbal working memory system. Basic system of the human mind that lets us keep verbal information active for short periods of time. And we rely on that system every day throughout the day to live our lives. So that's one thing your inner voice helps you do. Uh, another thing it helps you do is, is simulate and plan. So before I give a big presentation, I will go over what I'm going to say, usually word for word in my head when I'm going for a walk around the, the hotel, right? I'm, I'm rehearsing. That's me using my inner voice. I don't just, and I don't just simulate what I'm going to say. I then imagine what is someone else going to say to me? And then I respond in my head. I go through that whole interaction using my inner voice. So we use our inner voice to simulate and plan. We also use our inner voice to motivate ourselves. So this morning I'm exercising, doing a really high inter intensity interval training, whatever it's called, hit class. Hit. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm miserable. I'm in pain. And the instructor's telling me to do more painful things. And I start talking to myself, you, come on, you son of a, you, you got this. You know? <laughs> and I'm being pretty firm, but I'm motivating myself. And athletes report doing this all the time. And then finally, 
And I wonder if this is where your self-talk really perks up. And knowing a little, knowing you a little bit outside of this podcast, I I suspect it does, but I might be wrong. So you tell me. Uh, for those of you who are listening, Derek's face now is becoming very serious as he waits for me to offer him uh, my my appraisal of the situation. <laughs> it's true. Um, so we use our inner voice to to storify our lives, like things happen in our lives that we're trying to make sense of. We're, we are meaning-making machines. Why did this happen? Why didn't I get this gig? Why did this person say this to me? What should I do? And we use our inner voice to create narratives that help us make sense of life. Um, so, so those are just a couple of the key functions your, your inner voice allows you to do. It all falls into the domain of talking to ourselves, but, but in lots of different ways for lots of different reasons. Your book has so many interesting little details about self-talk. One of them is that according to one study, we internally talk to ourselves at a rate equivalent to speaking 4,000 words per minute out loud, uh, which put in perspective means that, uh, or put in perspective, uh, the contemporary American president's State of the Union speeches typically run around 6,000 words and last over an hour. So it's extraordinary the degree to which we can talk to ourselves in a way that is really, really concentrated and fast. Um, I want to focus on the, this concept of negative self-talk because that was one of the key, that's one of the key parts of your book. Um, before we get into the mechanics of negative self-talk and why it's such a common part of the human experience, why don't we just make this personal very quickly? Um, give me an example of negative self-talk or chatter from your own life. Um. Happy to. This is this is payback for putting you on the spot before about your own self talk. <laughs> um, so so negative self talk or well, well actually let me distinguish between negative self talk and chatter because I think there's a really it's a subtle but important distinction. Um, negative self talk is when there's just negative content that you are you are saying to yourself. Oh, I screwed up or I made a mistake. That would be negative self talk. Um, the difference between negative self-talk and what I call chatter is chatter it involves getting stuck on a negative thought loop. So it's not just, oh, I screwed up, and then I learn from my experience and move on. It's, oh, I screwed up. Shit, what am I going to do? I can't believe I screwed up. Why did I do that? And you start looping over and over again. And so the idea is when problems happen, what we often do is we we try to make sense of them using our inner voice, this capacity to talk to ourselves, but we don't come up with clear solutions and we start spinning instead in, in ways that are enormously dysfunctional. Um, that's what chatter is all about, getting stuck in those negative thought loops. And I, I think it's an incredibly common experience. I'll give you an example of my own as, as you asked me to do. So several years ago when my youngest daughter was a newborn, We'd have this ritual that we engaged in every day before she'd take her nap. I'd change her diaper and then I would kind of like take her. She's very little. And um, I kind of like, you know, swoop her in the air like like she's a, an airplane going for a spaceship, going up and down, back and forth. And and then she we're going in for like, oh, you know, it's going to be a really rocky landing. And, and I then push her down rapidly into the crib, but then stop soft, very soft landing in the crib. And she absolutely loved this experience. If you were to have watched it, it'd be like a positive mood induction for anyone. She's oogling and giggling and, and I'm having fun. And then we, we participate in this ritual one time. And as I take her in for that 
that smooth landing at the very end, it's not just smiles and giggles. Instead, it's it screams. And what is going on here? And uh, and she's holding her elbow really tightly. And what ended up happening was she she grabbed onto my shirt as I as I pushed her into you know put her down into the crib gently with all the best intentions, mind you. And when she when she held onto my shirt, um, her elbow was dislodged essentially from the socket. Nurse's elbow is pretty common experience in newborns. And I felt totally helpless. I felt such terrible uh, emotional and even some physical pain myself looking at, hey, here's this this being that I care so much about and I've just hurt you unnecessarily. How did this happen? What what did I do? I'm start I start looping. Right. First it's about her. Then it goes up a level of abstraction. What is my wife going to say? Should I call her? She's doing this. Do I interrupt? Oh boy. Then it goes up another level. Wait a second. We have to take her to the doctor. And what is the doctor going to say? They're going to think that I abused her and that maybe this was a form of, you know, and so my mind starts spinning as I attempt to work through the situation and how to deal with it. And I'm playing all the worst case scenarios. I'm catastrophizing and I'm a wreck as a result. That's what chatter is. That was a a, a pretty severe case for me uh, when it happened. But, you know, if you look at the science, what you learn is that we all, ex- well, I don't want to say we all, most of us experience these chatter blips throughout our lives and they can vary in intensity. And when they occur, they can be enormously disruptive um, without trying to be hyperbolic. I think they are one of the big problems we face as a species. Um, and I say that based on on the science. So, so that's what chatter is. That was my one example of an experience I had. We could probably spend the whole time talking about more if you like, but um, I think everyone has that example, especially of something that you deeply regret that happened very subtly. When you make a small mistake, when you can imagine a parallel reality in which that tiny mistake had not been made, how can you not loop and loop and loop and essentially think through a, but a, a bunch of, if only something slightly different had happened, I wouldn't be in this terrible position. I want to bring the topic to sports. You know, this is a bringer podcast network. This is a sports podcast network. And I feel like this issue, the, the the mental gymnastics that athletes go through is this perennial topic that I'm really interested in. And in particular, I've always been fascinated by the phenomenon of professional baseball players getting the yips, uh, which basically means to people who don't follow baseball that after a certain period of their life, some baseball players literally cannot throw the ball properly anymore. Uh, the second baseman Chuck Knobloch had this situation and famously Rick Ankeel, um, a star prospect for the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, also faced uh, the yips. Just very briefly, tell us Rick Ankeel's story and what this tells us um, about the effects of chatter. I'm happy to share that story with you, but I have a question first. Was the Chuck Knobloch reference a dig because you know I'm a Yankees fan? Dude, I'm a Yankees fan. Okay. I, I suffered through it. I, I oh suffered my, my own negative self-talk just having to watch Chuck Knobloch have to throw the ball into the stands over the, the, and over the and emotional over trying pain. to hit the first baseman. And, and for those of you who don't know Chuck Knobloch, or, or maybe you're not like super baseball f- fans... Chuck Knobloch was an all-star second baseman who who actually couldn't throw the ball five feet 
accurately. It was really remarkable. So let me tell you about another remarkable case of the yips, and then I'll link it back to chatter. And that's a great way of actually talking about why this can be such so disruptive. So Rick Ann Keel was, um, was what was, he was generally con- considered to be a phenom um, when he came into Major League Baseball. He was touted as having the potential to be one of the greatest pitchers of all time, played for the St. Louis Cardinals. And throughout his first season in the league, he performed like a phenom. He, he helped get his team to the playoffs. And then during his, his um, I believe it was his first appearance in the playoffs, something really strange happened. He winds up and he throws a wild pitch. Drew Jones in the dirt, back to the screen. And over the second base goes Greg Maddox on a wild pitch. It's a special. Now, most pitchers throw a wild pitch every now and again, but but not Ann Keel. He was like Greg Maddox in his, his precision, right? Like he had thrown the ball tens of thousands of times, maybe hundreds of thousands of times. He could get it into the mitt with his eyes closed, but he throws this wild pitch, and so... He, when that happens, he stops and he goes, huh, I just threw a wild pitch and um, gets the ball, shrugs it off, winds up, throws it again, and he throws another wild pitch. Another wild pitch over the head of Hernandez and back to the backstop. And another, and another, and another. And when I'm talking wild, like you can actually go watch this on YouTube. It is painful to watch this. I mean, you see the ball sailing into the, into the back backdrop i mean it is it is he's he's missing the plate by a wide margin wild pitch and then chipper jones up wild pitch galarraga up with runners at second and third and a save of a would-be wild pitch and then on a walk to galarraga wild pitch and now another wild pitch we'll go into the wildness hall of fame i think uh and keel eventually uh gets pulled out of the game he comes back again, throws more wild pitches. The next season, they give him another go. He's got to drink alcohol before the game to calm his nerves. He's so nervous all of a sudden. He still can't find the plate. He eventually um, leaves Major League Baseball and 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 never actually pitches again professionally. He does reinvent himself as an outfielder later on in his career, but pitching for him someone who was on track to be the best ever at what he does was undone. Why did this happen? Because of his self-talk. So he's on the mound. And what he starts to do is he starts focusing on all of the individual pieces of his windup. Now, let me, let me back up a, a second. So when you're, th- when you're pitching or performing any complicated sports behavior, you are doing something very complex without thinking because we've developed these these habits. We link together lots of different uh, movements into one seamless whole. So if you're pitching, you 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 grip the ball a certain way, you step back, you lift your leg, you you move your you know your shoulders and so forth. Like it's a super complicated windup. And what you teach kids to do in little league is to perform that action without thinking. In the same way that you don't really think when you walk down the street anywhere, right? You don't really think about, hey, how how far should I lift my leg up when I'm running on the treadmill? You just do it. What Chatter does, and which is what I would argue Ankeel experienced on the mound that day, is it zooms us in on the thing we're worried about. So if I'm worried about my pitch, I, I 
tunnel vision. That's all I could think about is, am I holding the ball tight enough? Am I getting enough momentum as I move back and forth? And what we've learned from laboratory research is once you start zooming in on all of the individual components of a complex behavior, the whole thing unravels. There's something so interesting about this and subtly strange, which is that shatter is both near universal and somewhat self-destructive. Like if you imagined many people's inner voice to be an outer person, that person would be an asshole. Like the, the individual would not want to hang out with the person who has set up residence inside of their brains. And it makes me wonder if chatter is often so negative and often so destructive to our performance or our focus, why do we have it? What neurological purpose does it serve? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, the insight into the asshole inside us is, I think, a powerful one. And it turns out some of the tools that can help people manage chatter involve simply recognizing that feature of our experience. So, so why does this happen? Um, I think of the inner voice as an unwieldy tool. It is a tool of the mind that when we wield it with precision, it can be really, really helpful. But we don't get a user's manual for how to activate this tool. Like I have yet to encounter uh, an adult who had a formal class in elementary school or middle school on how to manage your inner voice, right? And so we have this capacity that actually works for us, I would argue, the majority of the time, right? The majority of the time that we're using words in our life to simulate and plan and and make meaning, I think it's it's often helping us, the times that it doesn't help us stand out because we know people have the sensitivity to negative information. Negative stuff looms much larger than everything else. Um, but in some cases, especially when there's a lot of emotion, what that can do is it can make it difficult for us to activate this tool well. One of the explanations for why that happens, if you want to dig a layer deeper, is when we're experiencing intense negative emotion of the sort that characterizes chatter, that often consumes many of the, the prefrontal resources we have. So prefrontal cortex, evolutionarily more uh, recent parts of the brain that help us think flexibly and underlie our ability to change the way we think about things, like rethink things. Many of those networks are are depleted by our chatter. So it's as though the, the resources that we have to manage our inner voice are themselves being consumed by the bad stuff, which, which you know, makes it really important to understand like, hey, so what are the back doors that allow us to regain control of the situation? And, you know, studying those back doors is what I've spent most of my career doing. And the good news is that despite how frequent and common chatter is, there are a lot of things people can do. So I think there's a, a lot of hope out there. I want to go one level deeper on this concept of the blinding effects of negativity or the fact that negativity, for whatever reason, dose for dose, seems to consume our attention more than mild positivity. Um, so I am what you might call a failed meditator. I have attempted meditation many times in my life. I really want to be a habitual meditator, but like as a habit, it just does not stick. That said, one of the takeaways that I've gotten from my many failed misadventures in meditation is that 
I like to try to watch my mind, especially when I'm feeling something negative, angry or jealous or frustrated, disappointed. I try to concentrate on that feeling of anger or jealousy, et cetera, and ask, what is happening here? Like, how has this like emotional color tone taken over my entire attention, sometimes even feel the vision. Like I can't even focus on the physical world when I'm you know, feeling really upset. And you had this passage in your book that absolutely leapt out at me. It goes, quote, negative inner voice hogs our neural capacity. Verbal rumination concentrates our attention narrowly on the source of our emotional distress, thus stealing neurons that could better serve us, end quote. I don't know if you want to take this in an evolutionary way or a neurological way. But why does negativity do this Do this to us? Why is it so hard to focus on the physical world when we're thinking negative thoughts? Well, the, the reason why is because the negative stuff is, if you take an evolutionary point of view, the negative stuff in our lives is so much more dangerous to our survival and our ability to pass on our genes than, than everything else. Because when we're talking about negative, we're talking about actually living or dying in a, in a, in a threat, right? Like, so we need to like hit the pause button and mobilize the like you know the, the the not just the navy seals but like the 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 army the fifth regiment the air force like everything all hands on deck to deal with this stuff and so that's a pretty crude response that we've evolved but but it gets the job done because it certainly focuses us in where our focus needs to be what we have also evolved the ability to do, though, is to hit that timeout button. You can activate it via meditation or like 30 other things. Let's get back to that um, meditation or other stuff in, in a little bit. But there are lots of other things that we've evolved, like back doors, escape hatches that we that we do possess, that we've learned about. Um, the problem is that we don't teach people about these backdoors. Like some, you, you know, some, I talk about like 30 or so tools in my book, science-based things people can do. Um, my guess is that some people have anecdotally kind of learned those experiences just through trial and error in their lives. Maybe their parents taught them about a few, but then there are a lot of others that just aren't on the radar. And so, so like, you know, the reason I wrote this book actually was to take what I think is really useful information and put it out there for people so that they can can figure out like what to do when the when the all consuming vortex of negativity uh, we all have our different ways of describing it uh, when it strikes. So, and we're going to get to the the advice aspect of your book in a second. I just want to hit one more point on describing self talk and chatter. I like to think that like our ability to be in dialogue with ourselves to think about the past, to think about the future, to imagine alternative timelines, it is a kind of superpower. I mean, it, it may be one of the great intellectual superpowers that our species has over other species, uh, that we have this capacity to have other voices within us that we can learn from. So what can we say positive, positively about self-talk's ability to um, improve our judgment and even our creativity? Our ability to silently use language helps us do lots of things. It can be a source of innovation and creativity. You're talking about what I th think of as mental time travel. Like my ability to um, go back in time in my mind and work through why I screwed this thing up or succeeded in this regard 
that is an essential capacity that allows me to learn and grow. It's a tool that allows me to learn from my mistakes, to savor the victories in ways that elevate my mood and motivate me moving forward. It, it, uh, that's going back in time and using self-talk to work, work through it, some issues. I, I can also go forward in time in my head and try to anticipate problems or fantasize about pleasant things happening in the future. That ability to be flexible in where we focus our attention and and to to recruit language to help us work through different scenarios, I would not want to live life without that tool. Um, it would really, I think, get me in trouble. Actually, I tell a story in the book about a um, a, a, a neuro not a neurologist, um, a a neuroscientist who. Um, actually provide some really unique evidence of what I just said, how disruptive life might be without a inner voice. Uh, she ended up having a, a stroke that temporarily uh, impaired her ling- linguistic centers in the brain, made it impossible to, for her to talk to other people as well as impossible for her to talk to herself. So she couldn't repeat a number in her head using words. She couldn't try to use words to sort through her life and make sense of her experiences. And um, she, she described this experience as tremendously disruptive. So, um, so you, you, we don't want to get rid of the inner voice. This is what people ask me all the time. Hey, Cross. Actually, they're not that. They, they usually say, hey, Professor Cross or Ethan. Um, it'd be fine if they said Cross. But the question they normally pose to me is, shut this thing up. How do I get rid of it? And the, the, what I usually respond with is we don't want to get rid of our inner voice. What we want to do is figure out how do you harness it to free it up, to do all the wonderful things it's capable of doing without all the bad stuff, without the yips, without the problems that it can have for your relationships and for your physical health. This concept of mental time travel and the mental time machine I, I don't want to be dramatic, but I do think it's like one of the most important ideas in the world. Like there is so much in meditation and self-help about living in the present, right? Be here now, be here now. And I do think it's like kind of bullshit. Uh, like as a species, we are not built to be here now. We are built with the mind that is designed to travel and we are better off as individuals and as a species, I think, for it. Like when you're in the time machine, the mental time machine, um, the key is, I think, are you driving or are you being driven? Like when we're, when I'll speak personally, when I am lost in regret, in thinking, oh, if only I just did that, or lost in future anxiety, thinking about some event that I really, really want to happen and I'm just not paying attention to my surroundings. Or maybe I'm lost in like that sideways time corridor of like being jealous about somebody else or wishing I had what someone else has. I am truly lost. I am truly lost when I'm being driven by that time machine out of my present. But when I can come back from that, when I can come back from regret to the present, when I can come back from anxiety to the present, and I can learn from regret and learn from anxiety, like those examples of mental tri- time travel, I think are really important to my ability to learn and get better judgment and become more creative. And it's about whether or not I have the capacity to realize that I'm mentally time traveling and then get back in that driver's seat and come back to the present, like Marty McFly, like get back in and come back home. And that seems to me to be such an important element of self-talk. How do we wrangle it enough that we get the best of it and then come back to our here and now 
uh, when it serves us. Does that concept of, of like driving the time machine uh, sit well with you? Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. The way I've described it is you want to be able to travel flu- fluently through time into the past or the future. The problem is that for a lot of us, we get in that time machine in our minds and then it, we go to the past or the future and then it, it breaks down not unlike Marty McFly, we get stuck. And that's not good. We don't want to get stuck in the future or past. So the the question is not how to rid yourself of the time machine so you're always in the moment. This would not be a good thing. There are species that are always in the moment. They tend to have like multiple legs, creepy crawlies, like cockroaches, things like that. I mean, like truly, those those are animals that are driven by stimulus response right here in the now. One of the things that makes us so incredibly unique as human beings is our ability to not be in the moment all the time. We don't want to shut that capacity down. Uh, I, I don't think it's actually possible to shut it down unless you have some kind of neural impairment, to be honest. I think it's actually an unattainable goal. Um, so what we want to do is is just figure out how do you travel in your mind more effectively using your inner voice, and that's what that's what the science in my book is all about. I, I want to say one thing: you you touched on this this cultural maxim of living in the moment right now that's very popular, and um, you know I think it is important to clarify that in cases where you find yourself getting lost in the past or future, refocusing on the moment can be useful. I think that there is data to support that. The problem is we've gone from recognizing the 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 fact that hey there are some instances in which focusing on the moment can be useful to think to to we go from that to hey we always have to be in the moment and if we're not in the moment that's us not achieving our full potential. And that is fundamentally wrong. It does not cohere with how the brain works, how the mind works, and is an important distinction I think we need to recognize. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match 
with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plane. Just go to indeed.com slash plane right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I have this kind of bastardized and definitely non-expert idea that maybe you can just give me some feedback on it because it's it's something that I've taken out of my reading of of yours and and other neuroscience books and books about meditation, which is this idea of three layers of thought. So at the bottom layer of thinking or the bottom layer of attention, you have sort of pure sensory experience. That is what flow, you know, Mihai Shiksen Mihai's concept of flow really feels like. So when I'm playing a board game, when I'm playing a sport, when I'm having an awesome dinner conversation with someone with great wine and food, there's no rumination, there's no anxiety. I'm fully plunged entirely into the moment. That's that sort of first layer of attention. And it tends to feel really good, let's be honest. The second layer is uh, let's, is where chatter lives. It's getting lost in thought, getting lost in anxiety or regret or jealousy or, um, or looping ideas about, oh, if I had only done this, that second layer of thought you really want to stay out of. But a lot of meditation and mindfulness research seems to be about building a third tier of attention, which is a tier that looks down into level two, right? Your ability to say, aha, that is regret. I identify you as jealousy. I am identifying you as rumination. And you can see all of this, all of these negative affects and the ability to see them is its own um, strategy for eliminating them, right? You're like a cop shining a light on the suspect and the suspect runs away. Sometimes just identifying the negative thought can help to move it away. Um, so you have these, this, my totally made up theory of like three layers of attention. How does that, how does your understanding of chatter and self-talk and, and thought um, fit or not fit with my sort of three-layer th- theory? Um, well, I like the name, the three-layer theory. That's, it is catchy. Um, I, I actually think you do a nice job providing a, a heuristic for how to think about these different mental states that we often find ourselves in. Um, you know, when you talk about, uh, like there's the sensory experience, the harmful chatter, and then the, the layer three, the way I would translate that is the the middle layer is 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 thinking in a destructive way, and then going up a level is what we call metacognition. It's thinking about thinking, and thinking about thinking, if you know how to do it, can be really really useful. Essentially, what we're talking about here is getting some psychological distance from your own experience, which is another thing that you know, as far as I know, human beings are unique in the degree to which we are capable of doing this. I can I can step outside myself and actually reflect, hey, what is Ethan feeling this way? Why is he doing that? Let me try to give Ethan some advice. Now that may sound totally wacky, kooky, like the kind of stuff that we make fun of on television shows. But in fact, there's a lot of research which shows that this ability to go to what you're calling level three, uh, number one, can be really helpful. Number two, there are a variety of ways that you can get to that level. There are a variety of level three tactics, if you will. This is now beginning to sound like a, 
uh, an NSA show that might appear <laughs> at 9 p.m. on channel on Fox Level or three something. tactics? Yeah. Level three tactics. Mind level three tactics. Stranger Things theme, like coming soon to a season near you. Um, so... Um, so let's talk. Let's let's just talk about this. These level three tactics, if you will, um, metacognition, or, or what I call distancing, getting some space from from your experience. Uh, let me break down for you why this is useful, and then what are a few different tools that exist to help you do that, so that if anyone is interested in maybe trying this stuff at home, they have some concrete things they could do. Uh, we talked earlier about when you experience chatter, you zoom in. You, the negativity permeates your entire being, right? What if this? What if that? Why the dread? All this bad stuff. Um, when that happens, what you want to do is kind of look at that bigger picture. Take a step back, if you will, and see that bigger space. Like recognize, you know, Derek, maybe you didn't talk so nicely to Ethan on the podcast, but you don't, have, you don't need to leave sleep. He's not going to hold the grudge. You know, like big picture, what is that one conversation going to mean in my entire life? Like, is that the only, right? So when we look at that bigger picture, we often find that there are solutions to our problems and stepping outside of ourselves, getting some objectivity can help us do that. You've done a nice job setting up the problem of the voice in our head and why it's often a jerk. This is a good place to switch to talking about solutions. What do the level three tactics look like? Like, How do we climb far enough above our thoughts to see them with clarity and remove ourselves from that looping negativity? You talked earlier about meditation. That's one tool that people can use to try to get this objectivity. One of the things that meditation teaches people to do is be able to recognize that the thoughts floating through their head are not intrinsically who they are. They're just these mental events. So you 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 know you start repeating a mantra over and over and focusing on your breath. And what most people learn really quickly is how amazingly difficult that is. Your mind wanders somewhere else. Eventually you have the recognition, oh, there are all these thoughts passing by, but I don't really need to cling to those thoughts. So that's what I would call pretty effortful intervention. It's effortful because it takes 15 or 20 minutes a day, once or twice a day to do that. There are other distancing tools we can use. We can think to ourselves, we can um, do something called distance self-talk. So um, this is a linguistic tool that involves using your name to try to give yourself advice like you would give advice to someone else. We said You said before, it's remarkable that I have an asshole living inside my head quite a bit. Um, what's interesting is like when your friends come to you with their problems, like how often do you activate that inner asshole when talking to them? I would, I, I would guess never. Like you're a supportive friend. You're trying to help them. So when we use our names to try to work through our problems, all right, Ethan, how are you going to manage the situation? Names and second-person pronouns like you, those are parts of speech that we usually use when we're referring to other people, right? Someone else. And so the link in your head between using a name and thinking about another person is super tight. So this is like a psychological jujitsu move. So when you start using your own name to think about your your problems to try to work through them, it essentially thrusts you into this advice-giving mode. It's like, all right, here's what I would say to a best friend. And that makes it a lot easier to work through our problems objectively. So that's another kind of um, distancing tool. Uh, one last one, and I'll throw it back to you, that um, maybe brings us full circle is something that I call mental time travel. It's a specific kind of mental time travel. And what it involves doing is 
when you're when you're down that rabbit hole of negativity, think to yourself, how are you going to feel about this problem tomorrow? If that doesn't take the edge off, think to yourself, how am I going to feel about this next week, next month, 10 years from now? And if 10 years doesn't work, ask yourself, how are you going to feel about this when you're dead? That is the ultimate time travel. And what that does is that those are other ways of broadening our perspective, right? Life is filled with ups and downs, but guess what? Almost everything that's negative, even the really big stuff, eventually comes down. And you traveling in time in your mind in this way, we call this temporal distancing, this makes it clear that what you're going through, as awful as it is, it will eventually fade. And that gives us hope that can be really useful when it comes to chatter. Tell me about the research that you've done or the research that you've read around venting. Because to a certain extent, I think there's probably a conventional wisdom that when you have a problem, it's good to just talk about it and to talk about it even in a very unstructured way, to, to bitch about it, to vent about it. Does venting work? Yeah, it certainly feels good to vent in, in some ways, right? Like when, when bad things are happening. Um, you know, if there's one chapter in the book that I feel really strongly about um, getting the message of that chapter out to people in the world, it is the chapter on other people and the role they play in either helping or hurting us unintentionally when it comes to our chatter. Uh, as you as you've described, Eric, there is a very strong popular belief that when when bad things happen, what you want to do is not keep it bottled up inside. You want to find someone to just get those emotions out to just get it out. Don't keep it in. Vent your feelings. This is a, I call this an ancient idea. It goes all the way back to Aristotle was popularized by Freud and People Magazine has run with it ever since. So it's it's really out there, right? Um, there's been a lot of research on this and here's what we have learned. Venting, venting leads people to feel closer and more connected to the people they're talking to. So it feels good to know that I can call you and share what's going through through my head right now in a very vulnerable way. The fact that you're willing to take the time to listen, to empathize, to validate my experience as a human being, that's really good for strengthening the friendship and relational bonds between us. Here's the problem. If all I do is vent in a conversation with someone else, if all I do is just, Derek, you wouldn't believe what happened at this faculty meeting earlier today. This person said this, it really pissed me off. And that's, you know, and then you just keep going, looping over and over on that. If all we do is talk about the bad stuff, I leave the conversation feeling really close and connected to you. I feel great about our friendship, but I leave that conversation just as upset, if not more upset than when I started, because all I've done is I've, keep the, I've kept that negative information active in our head. One way to think about this metaphorically is the mind, the way the mind works in terms of uh, emotion is is kind of like the game of dominoes. You activate one negative thought and that pings another negative thought and a related negative thought. And you think about all the different experiences with that person who pissed you off and how much you hate them and you're, you're miserable when you're done. So that is the hazard to, to, to pure venting, which raises the question, all right, so should we not vent? What should we do instead? You don't want to not vent. What you want to do is find people to talk to who let you do two things. Number one, you do want to take some time to share what's going through your, your mind and, and your heart, right? It's good to share your feelings. But at a certain point in the conversation, 
the person that you're talking with ideally helps broaden your perspective. Someone else who's not going through what you're, you are going through is in an ideal position to help you work through that experience because they've got the objectivity. They have the psychological distance. They are already at Derek Thompson's level three of NSA, you know, tactic level awareness, right? Like they're there. They can be that objective guide. And so, so, you know, if we were to role play how this might work, let's say I'm the, I'm the friend, you come to me, you're, you're, you've got tons of chatter. First, I'd ask you some questions. Hey, tell me what happened. Oh my God, that sounds awful. Yeah, I'd feel the same way too. I'd learn about what you're going through. And then at a certain point in the conversation, um, I might, I might just, Hey, can, can I offer you, I, I, I have a thought. Can I share it with you? Um, you might say, no, I want to keep talking for a little bit. And, and if so, I would keep listening. I try again, but in other instances, you might say, yeah, please. What do you think, Ethan? And then I'd start, I'd start kind of riffing, right? Like I might share with you how I've dealt with a similar situation or ask you, how do you think you could have dealt with this more effectively or give other prompts to you to help broaden your perspective. That is the key to getting good chatter support. It involves talking to people who allow you to do two things, share your emotions and work through them. You don't want to find people who just focus on one or the other of those two processes. It's interesting because the metaphor that occurs to me right now is that negative chatter is a little bit like a whirlpool, almost like, like a jacuzzi. And you can get stuck in it. You can, you can feel sucked into it and you can't get out. And acts of distancing, anything that puts your mind or attention outside of that jacuzzi is good. If you talk to yourself in the third person, Derek, you need to shape up. You need to stop thinking about this and move on and just like focus on the trees, take a walk. That's me getting out of the jacuzzi. Me having a conversation with Ethan and you working through, here's ways that you can fix this problem. Here's ways that other people have fixed this problem. That's getting out of the jacuzzi too. But if I just want to vent, if I just want to bitch about the problem, that's me inviting you into the jacuzzi, right? I'm, I'm not actually getting out at all. My attention is actually being sucked into the whirlpool. Um, I want to talk about one other way. I think it's a very powerful metaphor. I'm in the jacuzzi. Here we go. <laughs> we didn't know we'd go there. Um, it feels good to have company in the jacuzzi even though it may be, you know, shriveling up your skin or whatever, have the <laughs> negative physical effects are if you take the metaphor, metaphor I, I, too far. I should far. say, I don't even like jacuzzis. The, the, the metaphor might have occurred to me because I already have a negative association with jacuzzis. Right, go right. right ahead. Uh, well, it certainly is evocative uh, visually. <laughs> but 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 yeah, I mean, I think it's great. Inviting them in so, so you could share in my misery. Misery loves company. I think that is true. There's science behind that. But- the goal isn't just to have, I, I would argue that for most people, we don't want to just have company in misery. We, we want to have company and then get out of the misery. And that's where step two comes into play. This, you know, there's a lot of like, there's decades of research go into what I just described to you before. And this is not my own research. It's the research of other folks um, across the world. Um, I, I say decades to, to convey that like there's a lot of complexity to how all this works that scientists have figured out. But what I love about it is that the take-home, practical take-home points here are really, really clear. There are like two things you need to be alert to. And if you have these two features of what it looks like to talk to someone productively, like share emotions and then also work through them, 
it makes it much easier to find the right guides in life. Um, so, so I like it for that reason. You had one more prescription that I thought was so interesting, which is that you said that clutching a lucky charm or embracing a superstition, simply believing that an object or a superstition might help relieve our chatter often has precisely that effect. Tell me why you think that works. So, so I find this fascinating. Um, I think the title of this chapter was Mind Magic, and um, I think about it as magical. Not to be clear in, a, well, you know, we don't know how strong the data is, but really magical in a more just, wow, human condition <laughs> is really a mind blower. Um, so here's what we've learned from decades and decades of research. Um, placebo effects are real. If I get you to believe something, especially if I get you to believe something having to do with your psychological functioning, how angry, depressed, anxious you are, you know, whether you have stomach issues, so things like that. Um, if I can get you to believe that there's going to be some change, that belief can activate a cascade of, of processes in the brain that bring those outcomes to fruition. So every, if we want to get really technical here, I'm joking, but like, if we, you know, take the scalp off, look into the brain, it's all connected, right? Sometimes the connections from one network to another take longer to, 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 to get to, but the, the networks that support our ability, our, our beliefs and how we think about the world, they can, they connect to parts of the brain that play a role in our, our physiological makeup, our sense of proprioception, how we interpret the signals that our body gives us. And so your beliefs can really channel your experience in powerful ways. And, and lots of research has shown that if you give people a sugar pill and you tell them, hey, this is going to make you feel better. Take it, take, trust me, I know what I'm talking about. Take two of these every day for the next 20, you know, 20 days and your depression will subside. You'll be less anxious. Many studies have shown that that is exactly what happens. And so if we go from those laboratory studies on sugar pills to the more real-world manifestation of, of those studies, that's, that's clutching a lucky charm. And so, you know, my daughter, if, if she has a lucky, a lucky, you know, a keychain that she likes to take with her to school before a test, I totally embrace it. If you think that's going to help you do better you know, clutch away, um, because it's not going to hurt. And, um, it may well have the effect that you think it is. Final thought. I am a secular reform Jew. I was brought up in the Jewish faith. I have lots of respect for religions, but I don't practice much. I see an interesting connection between two things you've just said. One, that belief itself can reduce negative chatter. And two, that distancing can reduce negative chatter. And it makes me think, like, to a certain extent, isn't belief in God the ultimate act of distancing? Like, religion tells us that there's a universal third person that we can look to when times are terrible. God loves me. There is a higher being with care for me. And when we put our faith in a higher being, what we're kind of doing is placing our locus of attention outside of ourselves. There might be something inherently satisfying and calming, I guess, about like the the removal of oneself from the whirlpool of chatter in that way. Yeah, I, I, so we're actually doing research on this right now. 
um, looking at the degree to which um, believing in religion and engaging in certain religious acts serves a distancing function, serves to help broaden your perspective. The the prediction is that, you know, Derek, you should just come come work in the lab. Like, we'll, we'll get you the PhD, <laughs> like, on an expedited timeline, right? Um, uh, this, six this years? Is, <laughs> seven for you. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, that's, I, I think, you know, religion is a powerful um, uh, boon to our well-being. And, and we know that from lots of research. What we don't yet quite understand are the mechanisms that explain how it helps us. I think distancing um, is one explanation for how that works. So, Absolutely fascinating. Ethan Cross, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And fantastic book. Chatter was really, it's always wonderful to read a book that shines such a clear light on a part of the human experience that you have thought about without thinking about. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating, leave a review. And don't forget to check out our TikTok at Plain English underscore. That's at Plain English underscore on TikTok. 